I'm Peter Samuelson. Today, we're going to talk about the strange behavior of film stars, my career as the producer of over two dozen films now, and what I've been able to do in society as a serial philanthropic entrepreneur using the same toolkit, but trying to make the world better for seriously ill children, the homeless. And maybe along the way, we'll talk about moral challenges of living in 2021 and how we can chip away at them and make, however modest, an impact, which by lifting up the lives of other people, we lift up our own. Welcome back to part three of our delicious conversation with movie producer Peter Samuelson, who is also a serial pro-social entrepreneur. He was educated at Cambridge University in England and went on to become a movie producer in Hollywood. He has uh, co-founded many foundations, including Starlight Children's Foundation and Star Bright which uh, he co-founded with Steven Spielberg. And we, in the last part, we talked about um, his uh, Spielberg, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf intersection and a big gun. And, uh, and in this section, we want to talk about Peter's work as he has uh, moved from the movie world, although he's still very much a part of that, looking at what is the connection between the movie world and making the, the 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 social change part and really bringing those things together and uh one of the movies that he has coming out um that is uh, about to premiere um all over the places depending on of course when you're listening to this is a movie called foster boy with a, a great cast it's wonderfully acted talk to us a little bit about foster boy how that came about and, and maybe give our, our viewers, our listeners, a little bit of an insight into what to expect. So um, two, three years ago, uh, the University of California Riverside campus, the faculty of the um, Masters in Screenwriting course said, can you come and do a two-hour lecture? And, you know, why you not? Said, I haven't got two hours. I can't talk for two hours. I can't talk for two hours, but I, I thought, well, I'll use film clips. And also they, I, I said, what do you want me to talk about? And they said, you can decide. So I thought, well, I'll talk about um, pro-social filmmaking. What is the role and purpose of film and television to affect social change? How do you do that? How do you make something commercial as well as um you know, it having a social purpose. So there I am, I'm lecturing away. There's maybe a hundred students sitting in a lecture theater at the University of California. And they all, they're getting their masters, their MFA. So they're all, as you would expect, they're sort of in their mid twenties or late twenties, mm -hmm. except this one mm -hmm. man who is sitting in the middle and he looks to be in his fifties to me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, it must be the token mature student. Sure enough, he's the one who makes a beeline for me at the end and says, can I buy you a coffee? Of course you can buy me a coffee. Let's go. There's a Starbucks right around the other end of this building. So there we're sitting. And he says, my name is Jay Derritani, and I'm a hugely successful litigator doing corporate litigation in Chicago. 
But what I do for love is I represent foster kids. And I had mentioned First Star and foster kids and the philanthropic work that I do, you know, to house, educate and encourage high school age foster kids on university campuses. He said I was struck by that. And uh, I work, um, you know, uh, all the time with foster kids in between the corporate litigation. And I asked the question, why do you do that, Jay? How did that start? That's magnificent. Why? How? And he said, well, it's sort of a funny story. I, um, I was forced to do it by, you know, circumstances and a judge. And he told me this story of representing a young man, um, a transition-aged youth who had been serially abused in um, a, a group foster home situation run for profit by a for-profit company who had put a sexual predator into the um, the farm, it was, um, where unbeknownst to the people running the, the placement, um, he serially uh, raped the younger boy, oh. and um, Jay represented this kid, and he won him several million dollars. And he told me the whole story over a coffee, sitting there in the student Starbucks. And I said, Jay, you know, you're learning to be a scriptwriter. This is like a sort of John Grisham story. But it's really vivid to me. It moves me because it's about foster kids. You should write it, said I. That was the end of that. We shook hands. I forgot all about him and all about the idea. Um, And then I opened an email a few months later, and it had a PDF attached. He'd written it. Now, if you're a producer, when a civilian sends you a script, you think, oh, God. There goes my Sunday afternoon. Now I've got to read this. They're never any good when they come from someone, you know, lacking in experience. I read this thing on a Sunday afternoon. It was so good. I read it a second time and I thought, this is fantastic. Mm. So on the Monday morning, I phoned him up and I said, this is really remarkably good. I think we should try and make it. Are you up for that? I can be your producer. He said, well, actually, there is one other thing to mention, which is I've raised a bit of money towards making it. And I said, well, how much have you raised, Jay? He said, well, about $4 million. And I said, no shit. How on earth did you do that? And he said, well, you know, I know people. And when they heard I'd written a script, they said, well, you know, we might like to back you. And I said, well, I don't think it would take much more than that to make the whole film and i know how to raise the the rest of it so i did and we did and we got matthew modine to play the lawyer and we got lou gossett jr to play the judge and we got amy brenneman to play the estranged ex-wife of the lawyer and on and on we put a really good cast together the bugger of it was we couldn't find to play the boy the young man uh an actor of color uh, we, we needed a rapper who could act or an actor who could rap. Oh. Uh, we couldn't find either that was available and affordable and all the rest of it. So our casting team under our casting director, Robert Ulrich, they did open casting. They saw over 400. Anyone who walked in through that door and they did, you know, Inglewood, South Central, Compton, 
And uh, they saw 400 kids uh, and they got it down to 100 who they gave callbacks to. And the kids came back, 100, 105, I think. And they read two scenes each and they videoed them. And then we got it down to 50, down to 20, down to 10, down to five, down to three, down to two, big agony. And we gave the role to Shane Paul McGee, um, which turns out to be one of the best bits of casting I have ever done. Um, And um, Shane said, you know, I kind of don't know anything about foster care. I was never in foster care. I don't know any foster kids. Can you help me find my character? And I said, oh, I absolutely can do that. You'll you come. might have a couple of resources in that direction. We might have a couple of resources. So we brought him over to UCLA not once but twice for two hours each time, and he stood at the front of a lecture theater with 60 teenage foster kids, and he said to them, you know, I'm playing you. Don't feel any pressure, but if you will, could you stand up one at a time and just tell me, Best thing that's ever happened to you in foster care. Thank God they all said first star, most of them. Um, And then he said, and tell me the worst thing that's ever happened to you in foster care. And they told these awful, heart-rending things. Some of them it was too personal, you know, because it had to do with sexual abuse or whatever. And um, the director of the First Star Academy at UCLA, I remember she said, those of you who didn't feel able to stand up and speak, his paper and pencil, write Shane a note. So a few weeks later, there we are in the studio, and I went to have a meeting with him in in his dressing room, and he had put, I noticed, these letters were up on a wall, uh, like maybe 20, 25 of them, and I said to him, oh, that's so touching that you would put them up. What, how, what, why have you done that? And he said, well, because when you call me to the set, I first spend two, three, four, five minutes and I just read some of the parts of the letters and I have that in my sort of in my heart and in my head and I come on the set and I try and remember I'm playing them and I it's really important. I have to do justice to it. So um, we made the film. It's been so successful, even though we opened it during the COVID last September, um, you know, we opened it in every drive-in we could get, um, and then it's on 25 different um, cable and view-on-demand platforms on iTunes and Fandango and Amazon Prime, and it's called Foster Boy. The website where all of those links are is fosterboy.com, but that's just the beginning of the yeah. story because one hat was we have to make this film well we can't go over budget. We have to stick to the schedule. It's got to be excellent. So we did that. With, when did you film it? When was it put together? Uh, it's about two years ago. Okay. Um, so and it, it just came pre-pandemic. Yeah, when you did all yeah, the filming. yeah. We just and got then, in under the wire pre-pandemic, and then excited so, to release it. But it's the pandemic. So. Then it was the pandemic, and we had so we had to do mostly view on demand. But it turns out view on demand is actually excellent because you can't be cheated by the distributor to anything near the same extent because you know how many people paid to see it and you get your share of that. Anyway, so we've been paying the investors back and so on and so forth. But that's just the beginning of the story because what I realized is, so we've made this film about how appalling and morally bankrupt it is to 
um, build revenue for profit on the heads of completely innocent foster kids. You know, there's one company that's on the New York Stock Exchange that did $2 billion in revenue last year from such things. Um, So I thought, well, we should try to make for-profit foster care illegal. So rather helpfully, after President Biden became president, he announced that there would be no more federal money spent to put convicted felons in federal prisons run for profit under, you know, corporate contracts with the federal government. So we thought, well, frankly, if it's not good enough to run a prison for convicted felons and make a buck on the head of the prisoners, who in their right mind would think that it's okay, Mm -hmm. as is the case in 28 states, to make profit on the heads of completely innocent um, foster kids. So we we decided the thing to do, I put together a consortium of eight nonprofits, eight charities, um, and it's been going really rather well. We, we created a website just for the effort to change the law, which is called uh, fixfostercare.org, fixfostercare, just how it sounds, .org. And there's a petition there. Uh, asking the federal government to stop supporting foster care run for profit. Turns out the federal government spends about half of all the money in America, $83 billion a year. Half of it comes from federal government. If they announce, no, we insist that uh, these group homes and so forth must be run um, either by the government itself or they must be run by a 501c3 charity, it would have a dramatic Uh, uplift for the lives of the children, because we know from independent research that when you're making a buck on the heads of kids, as is the case in 28 states, uh, it's not in the kids' best interest. You know, if you pay incentives to your staff, the more they move the kid around, they get bigger bonuses. Well, guess what they do? They move the kid around. So you have no consistency. We have kids who come into First Star who have lived in 25 placements. How do you even write your name on a piece of paper in your school, um, uh, uh, let, let alone earn grades if you've well, been moved aside around. from that, um, you know, uh, my side of the world, uh, you know, uh, in the psychology of it, the um, there's no, no way to create attachment and you're setting up a sociopathic platform psychologically for that individual uh, where they will become narcissistic. They'll become detached. And it's, it's a, it's a setup for failure, but you've been, you've not just been fighting uh, the for-profit foster care. You, you and your organization have been meeting with the white house as well. So tell us a little bit about that. How did you get right. into the, that? The, yeah. The, we do have allies both in the white house and in Congress Um, We're in the middle of a big press campaign at the moment, which was donated to us. We've just done ABC, NBC, scripts broadcasting. So that's kind of, uh, we're about halfway through that process. And then uh, I hope in September, uh, we will make appointments and we'll go and do a couple of days in Washington, D.C., and we'll meet everyone who is anything to this issue, including in the White House, and let's get it stopped. So I have a direct ask to anyone listening or watching, fixfostercare.org, it's a petition. 
It's only a paragraph long. There should not be money being made for profit on the heads of completely innocent, abused or neglected children. Could you please sign it? You will be in good company because when I looked earlier this morning, so far we have 333,500 signatures on the petition. So fixfostercare.org, we could use your help. I'd like to be able to say in the White House when we go in two, three months, I'd like to be able to say that we got one adult to sign for every child in foster care. And that uh, conveniently is 433,000 kids are in foster care through no fault of their own. So we need another 100,000 signatures to get us up to 433,000. So fixfostercare.org, it'll take you 30 seconds and you'll feel so good for the rest of the day. Please sign the petition, fixfostercare.org. Well, we'll definitely make sure that that is put into the show notes and we'll definitely make sure that that is put into all the access to this show. Um, I certainly will be going there directly after we finish recording. And I encourage you, you even now as you're listening, you can do that side by side with while you're listening is to go to fixfostercare.org, sign the petition because listen, I, I don't know what kind of moral compass you have as an individual, but it's not it's not a big stretch for anybody to realize that if if foster care is for profit just like the prison system if it's for profit it's not going to be for the good of the human being and that is you know there's there's we have to change these things this you know again you know you heard peter and i talking about how we both fell in love with the american dream and and that idea that you could come to america and make it and make it um but not on the backs of, of those who are suffering, not at all. So no, I, particularly I, through no fault of their own, like foster care. I'm, don't get me wrong out there, uh, those listening, watching. I'm a big capitalist. I yep. believe in, you know, free markets, the American dream and the whole thing. Um, there are exceptions. I do not want the fire department uh, to be running on a profit motive. I also don't believe it is morally defensible for there to be these enormous, one of the companies on the New York Stock Exchange, for God's sake, you know, with the CEO earning, I think, $900,000 a year. Come on, uh, go make a buck somewhere else. Leave the kids alone. There is a lot, and it's on fixfostercare.org. We we were very careful. I love it when people say, um, is the film true? You know, are, are, are there companies making money on the heads of foster kids? Yes, is the answer. The mm-hmm. Senate Finance Committee in 2018 studied this extensively. There's a 200-page report that we've linked to and its executive summary. It's all on fixfostercare.org. It's completely true. It needs to stop. In the end, foster kids, I, the way I think of it, it's the last great civil rights struggle that never had a day one. Why? Well, several reasons. First of all, it's the only one where it's children, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They don't march. They're never going to chain themselves to the railings. You've never read an op-ed by an underage 18 foster kid. They don't have lobbyists. They don't vote. They haven't got any money. And the whole thing is kept secret. So Mm. actually, in America, um, how would anything ever change? 
the victim class is voiceless. No civil rights struggle, you know, Cesar Chavez and the farm workers or the suffragettes or Americans with disabilities, etc. People of color, the Voting Rights Act, Brown versus Boy. None of it was ever easy, but at least they could march and sit. At least at there the, was a voice. There was a voice. Children, they don't even know that they're hard done by. So many children think this is really shitty. And this is my life. And I guess this is it. You know, this is just the way it is. So they can't change it themselves. Um, I modestly raise my hand and invite you out there to raise yours. Fixfostercare.org. And also what I've learned from the film Foster Boy is you can make a great big commercial film that does business, pays the investors back, earns profits, etc., and that um, makes a difference in society. If we pull this off and we get the federal government to stop financially supporting foster care run with reverse incentives for profit, we will have used a film as the spark plug and all these signatures as the engine, and I'm crossing my fingers. I will never give up until we stop it. See, this this is what I loved about what you were doing with this, Peter, and when we talked about it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a movie buff. I love movies. I, I've always loved movies. You know, I just love the, the whole thing about it, right? It was even involved briefly in the world of it. But, you know, I, I remember working with, as my clients, some reasonably well-known actors at the time. And, and um, you know, and a couple of them would come to me and go, you know, I feel like this is so meaningless this work that I do and I'm feeling like frustrated that you know I want to do more in the world and I'm doing this and I'm entertaining and I get paid a lot of money to be entertaining but you know it's kind of frivolous and I said I don't believe that I believe it can be that but I don't believe that that's the ultimate and he said I remember talking to this one guy and he said well what do you mean and I said if you can fully act a role and feel that role then via mirror neurons and empathy, I in the audience sit there and feel those feelings and I tie to that cause, whatever that is, emotionally. But that's the drop-off point in normally in a movie. And what I love about what you've done is you said, now there's no drop-off point. This is now, hold on a second, this is tied to something. And this is this seems to be, maybe I'm illusionary here, but it seems to be a it seems to be you've you've created this missing position from watching a movie, being inspired, maybe even being moved, and then driving home and forgetting about it. And you now saying, "Let's not drive home and forget about it. Let's do something." Am, am, am I right there? Is that? Yeah. Well, you are. And in fact, on the back of Foster Boy, with partners, um, I've built uh, a whole film and television company. It's called filmcomedia.com, P-H-I-L-M-C-O, media, filmcomedia, but with a P-H, filmcomedia.com. And every film and television project that we put together, not only have we got teams working on, you know, get the script right, make the film efficiently, make it really good, the casting team and all the rest of it, But we've also got an activation team who, from the very beginning, are working with 501c3 nonprofits. They help us with the script. They come on the set. 
They inspire the cast and the crew. They help us get the edit right. They help us with earned media, social media, when the film comes out. How do we sell a film? How do we advertise a film? Normally, you do daft things like putting a poster on the back of a bus. Seriously, you think enough people will follow that bus and they'll say, oh, that looks interesting. I must write down the name of that film. I must remember it. I want to watch that film. Um, It's a very blunt instrument. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, if you work with the World Wildlife Fund or you work with the leading organ transplant charity and they've got millions of members um, and they send an email out saying, hello, we own part of the profits on this film. It's coming out on Friday. Could you take a couple of friends, help us get it open over the weekend and tell your friends about it? And um, if you can get the choir to help you open a film, to launch it and to speak to their friends, uh, it's it's a win-win situation. I think the only thing that's amazing is it sort of hasn't really been done very much because most film people I know would like to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. But most of the scripts flying about are distractive entertainment. They, they, They aren't designed to create empathy and then to give people an actual agenda. Here, press this button, click on this QR code, vote for this, lobby your member of Congress, donate, volunteer, become a foster parent, become uh, an adoptive parent, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So every film is slightly different. And filmcomedia.com, if this rings any bells out there, um, you know, come one, come all. Filmcomedia.com with a PH on Filmcomedia. One of the things that I find interesting about it, Peter, and I want to ask you is, you know, you're a, you're a film producer, and this may be fairly obvious to you, but I just want to make sure that everybody understands why, you know, obviously what you're doing here is showing how entertainment can be for a cause and profit can be for a cause and, you know, that they can work hand in hand, which is magnificent. But why did you decide to go with, you know, like with, with for instance, with Foster Boy, which is a narrative dramatization versus making a documentary about the insanely dysfunctional, profitable, uh, for-profit foster care. Why did you choose to go that road? I'll tell you why. Um, If you, I mean, we're living right now, thank God, in a golden age of documentary filmmaking Mm -hmm. because of companies like Netflix and Mm -hmm. HBO Plus and all the rest of them, Apple, et cetera. Uh, all of a sudden, you actually can find uh, commercial distribution and pay the investors back on a documentary. But mm-hmm. the audience for a documentary still uh, is this big. My hands are close together. Yeah. As opposed to the audience for a narrative fiction with a couple of stars in it, which is, you know, nice. 5X or 10X bigger. Yeah. So if you define social purpose as being rateable to how many hearts and minds can you win over, in how many hearts can you correct, can you create empathy and a wish to do something that you can channel into actual pragmatic social change? Well, you, I mean, we, we also make documentaries in Filmco, lots of them. 
Um, we actually, one of our documentaries, Ferguson um, Rises, uh, we just won the Audience Award in Tribeca uh, yesterday. So um, congratulations! Very, very happy about that. And that's now going to have major distribution. And, you know, thank you, Tribeca audience. Um, and um, so we do documentaries, but in terms of the generation of empathy, my, my theory is this, and it speaks to those neurons and uh, things that you were talking about. Empathy is very fragile and it has mm -hmm. a shelf life. Yes. If you move someone's heart by the end of the credits, certainly by the time everybody goes outside and gets in the car and goes home and walks the dog, they've forgotten all about it. Mm -hmm. you, 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 you have to channel the empathy quickly, whether it's through the QR code that takes you to the website, whatever. We've put so much energy and time and money in Filmco into working out how do you activate an audience of citizens to do something. Um, think of it this way. So um, President Trump uh, made a speech on January the 6th, as a result of which 300,000 people, a lot of them very angry, marched on Congress. Mm -hmm. That's the effect of words yep. on people's emotions. Yep, absolutely. I'm saying let's take that and turn it 180 degrees in the opposite direction. What a radical idea. Let's create emotion in an audience. Let's do it with that level of visceral appeal, but let's do it to help foster kids to encourage people to become organ donors, to um, help um, um, physically challenged young athletes to have access to um, high school and collegial sports, to um, push back on global warming, to get people to not drop their plastic in the drain, and on and on and on. We're always trying to find strong narratives, strong characters, a compelling storyteller. We, we've got, I mean, this is the other wonderful thing about Filmco. We have amazing people. Turns out every star to speak of and every major director, they all want to make Filmco films. Why? Well, because they actually believe in the issue. Yes. You know, um, we're talking to a whole, this project we've got that's called Heartbeat which is um, uh, action adventure. It's a bit like, you know, Die Hard or one of those 80s and 90s action adventure films. But the man is driving uh, in an automobile through a very bad storm with a box next to him on the passenger seat strapped in. And just as he's falling into a drug deal gone wrong at an airport, we realize Oh God, what's in the box is a child's heart. Yeah. And if he doesn't get it to the second hospital by eight o'clock tonight, a little girl will die. So, what is it? Well, it's action adventure. It's going to yeah. have a major star. It's a very big film. Um, and we're very proud of the script. And we've got um, Bobby Roth, wonderful director, directing it. He's going to ace it. Um, but what else is it? Well, it's a plea to please sign up as an organ donor. And, and there are subtleties to it. So, like, we met with the organ transplant charity and the writer of the script. 
And we said, so can you give us your notes? Did we get any of the technology wrong? Have we used the wrong words or anything? And she gave us a bunch of stuff. The, the lady, Tanaya Wallace from the organ transplant charity. And then she said, there is one other thing. Would it be okay if you made the donor family, the parents of the child who has died in a climbing accident and who is now brain dead and they're going to donate the organ that is going to go into the little girl, would it be okay, said Tanaya from the organ transplant charity, if that family was African-American? And we said, yeah, hadn't thought of that, but why not? Of course we can. Uh, and she said, well, let me explain to you why. The African-American community is very far behind the percentage who sign up as organ donors. Why? Well, because they're very dubious, wary about organized medicine. Why? Justifiably. <laughs> yeah, the Tuskegee experiments. Yeah. There's like a hundred-year history of the medical establishment doing harm to the black and brown communities of the United States. Yeah. So they tend not to sign the back of their driver's license and register as an organ donor. Um if you could make it a black family, that would go a long way. And we said, it's done. And in fact, it was even better because the writer said, you know, I know exactly how to do this. It makes those characters better because Fantastic. they'll have the debate between them and they'll end up doing the right thing, but it won't be easy for them. And that will be very, you know, propulsive in, in the narrative and in those characters. And so forth. So Beautiful. what is it? Heartbeat is action adventure. Guy driving a car very fast, falling into a drug bust. Uh, there's a storm and the, the, you know, the bridge is out and all the rest of those things that we do in films. We got helicopters and drones and all the rest of it. Um, but it's about what's in the cooler on the seat next to him. Very cool. And in the end, the purpose of the film is, yep, let's get an audience, let's make money, let's have a big audience. Why? Well, because it's a commercial film, need to pay the investors back. But also, the bigger the audience, the more organ donors will sign up. And what a thing that's going to be. That's I want so to talk wonderful. about a metric. So like a year or two after the film comes out, we'll look at the graph of signups as organ donors. If we get a spike, and we can hand on heart say, our film did that. What a magnificent yep, feeling that, that will be. How many lives will be saved because people signed up who wouldn't otherwise have thought to do it? Fantastic. This is and deeply inspiring, Peter, and I love that you're – you're doing this work. Uh, we are already a little over on this third section of our conversation. We're going to come back for part four in a minute. And one of the things I want to talk about is, um, as we come back, as part of this work is uh, Adar, which is uh, really looking at the whole homeless situation. Uh, you, of course, are in L.A. And, uh, you know, the, the homeless situation there is uh, insane, as it is across the world, by the way. Let's be clear about that. But I want to talk about that and your work in that world as well. So, you know, again, I want to thank you and salute you for everything that you're doing and in bringing such depth to something that is seen as surface, that is seen as egoic, 
and that this is in net, instead of egoic has great depth and is soulful and human and is making a massive difference. So for you, dear listener, I want to encourage you to come back for the part four of the show, which is one click away with our wonderful guest, uh, movie producer Peter Samuelson will be back in just one click. So stay curious, my friend. Stay curious.